Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to American Muse Podcast, where we explore hidden secrets in the landscape of 19th and 20th century American orchestral music. Your host is Dr. Grant Gilman, conductor, violinist, and author based in Atlanta, Georgia. In each episode, Grant unearths a fresh orchestral work by an American composer you may not even know. By the end, we hope you are a new fan of the composer and their music. Now, your host, Maestro Grant Gilman. In this episode of American Muse, we will hear the first symphony of Roy Harris titled for the year it was written, 1933. We will discuss the odd man Harris was, his nomadic nature, and an interesting story about he, his wife, and her name. Stay tuned for that. Roy Harris, or Leroy, as is his full first name, born in Oklahoma, but quickly moved to Southern California. He studied with Arthur Farwell at UC Berkeley, He had his first orchestral piece premiered at Eastman by Howard Hansen. That's about the best promotion you could ask for right out of the gate. Then he met a guy named Aaron Copeland, who suggested he go to Paris and study with another composer named Nadia Boulanger. If you're not familiar with those names, they are pretty big in the music world. It's hard to go wrong after starting a career with names like that on your resume. Oh, but let's add one more, shall we? After returning to the U.S., Harris eventually meets Serge Kusevitsky, another career maker at the time, who then premiered and recorded Harris's Symphony 1933, and that became the first commercially recorded American symphony. Another thing to know about this man is that he could not sit still for very long. In chronological order, he taught at Juilliard, Westminster, Cornell, Stanford, Colorado College, University of Utah, Peabody College for Teachers in Nashville, Pennsylvania College for Women, Southern Illinois University, Indiana University, the Inter-American University in Puerto Rico, UCLA, and finally Cal State University Los Angeles. And that's just the university positions. Harris had a massive composition portfolio, and while he covered most of the bases, vocal chamber, ballet, concertos, etc., His main focus was clearly on the symphonic form. Harris numbered 13 symphonies, although out of superstition, he numbered the last 14 to avoid the number 13. Plus, the three symphonic essays, American Portrait, Our Heritage, which he apparently only finished one movement for, a symphony for high school orchestra, American Symphony for jazz band, Chorale Symphony for Chorus and Orchestra, and the Walt Whitman Symphony for Solo Baritone, Chorus, and Orchestra. Oh, also a symphony for voices, an entirely a cappella work. So I'd say he was hooked on the symphony. Now, though there is still time left for this to happen to me, I have never had the honor of being properly called a genius uh, by anyone other than my mother. 
Roy Harris, on the other hand, did have this dubious fortune. Paraphrasing a famous quote of Robert Schumann, praising the talents of an up-and-coming Frederick Chopin, one Arthur Farwell said of Roy Harris, quote, Gentlemen, a genius, but keep your hats on. Later, the equally great Walter Piston would counter by complimenting Harris for, quote, surviving the trying experience of having been hailed as a genius. It would seem that Roy Harris had a strong effect on critics and contemporaries alike. Uh, One possible reason the label of genius did not affect Harris negatively was his ability to stay so presently in the moment, maintaining an intense focus on the matter at hand. Certainly an aspect that reveals itself in his compositions and a characteristic that makes for long days and short years. Okay, one strange story I need to tell you is about he and his second wife. So in 1936, Harris married Beula Dufay. Dufay was already on her way to a spectacular career as a pianist, having been hailed as a prodigy in Canada and then as the youngest faculty member at Juilliard. The interesting part is that Harris convinced her to change her first name to Johanna after the great Johann Sebastian Bach. From what I could find, this was welcomed and uncontentious. It seems to have been a business and career decision as much as anything else. I just can't quite imagine starting that conversation. Darling, I love you. I love everything about you. It, it's just your name. I don't like it, and no one else will either. Instead, let's name you after a very dead male composer. What do you say? It's a little weird. It turns out that at first, Harris only numbered the symphonies that used the traditional symphonic orchestra. But then he wrote what he called the Abraham Lincoln Symphony for piano, percussion, and brass. And he numbered it the 10th, so that tradition ended. Harris's approach to the various aspects of symphonic composition is articulated nicely by a biographer of his, Dan Stamen. He says, quote, Formal procedures he employs in the symphonies are virtually the same as in his miscellaneous orchestral and band works and his chamber compositions, for that matter. Acquaintance with all of Harris's works in the genre reveals that his most consistent view appears to have been of the symphony as a work of greater seriousness, emotional variety, intensity of expression, and length than was the norm for him. Though the elements which went into their creation were formed and treated quite similarly to those employed in other works, the materials of the symphonies are sometimes greater in number richer in complexity, and accorded a more elaborate development, with especially prominent use of the various types of motivic working out. Occasionally, ideas recur in a thematic sense within a symphony, thus providing more of a sense of large-scale unity than one finds in the miscellaneous pieces. The quality of the ideas in the symphonies, particularly the long melodies, is sometimes more distinctive than that found elsewhere in Harris's Over. We're going to find that very soon in this piece we'll talk about today. So Symphony 1933 
or Symphony No. 1, pieced together from bits he had already composed. Yet it isn't necessary to know that, per se, to, do, to enjoy the work. The initiation of this piece came about, as I mentioned earlier, via Aaron Copland introducing Harris to Kusevitsky, who was at the time not only the music director of the Boston Symphony Orchestra, he premiered works by so many American composers, he was basically a career maker. According to Harris's memory, Kusevitsky said, Copland told me you are the American Musorgsky. You must write for me a big symphony from the West. I will play. Excuse my Russian accent, but that's a pretty cool endorsement for someone that, at the time, was likely destined to make your career, right? Now to the symphony itself. These excerpts were performed by the Louisville Orchestra under the direction of George Mester. Symphony 1933 is in three movements, Allegro, Andante, and Maestoso. Nothing special there. What Harris does from the very beginning is establish a rhythmic theme, one that is both inherently contrasting alternating triplets against eighths, but is presented as triumphant and at times quite aggressive. At the very opening, the timpani presents the rhythm and the winds furiously wind through the melodic material that will be developed, followed by a brass variation. section of this movement shows characteristic melodic writing by Harris, using a soaring string line supported by regularly interjected rhythmic motives reminiscent of the opening energy beneath. section, where the opening material returns, Harris shows his ability to play with layers and space. In this excerpt, string and timpani punctuate a heavy rhythmic figure. The woodwinds play a sustained, menacing melodic line in unison, and the brass begin a fugal conversation over the top. The effect is quite powerful.
second movement, Harris's lush melodic writing is fully featured. Another aspect is the harmonic writing that is in some ways key to the uniquely American sound that is starting to develop. Here, Harris uses here Harris uses a tightly dense harmonic accompaniment that moves rhythmically in sync with the melody and has many surprising chromatic twists as it moves along. movement, while not overwhelming in energy, is constantly building interest and tension. In fact, Harris does this with a motive based only on three notes. Throughout the movement, he morphs those three notes in so many fashions you likely would not notice without it being pointed out, and that's the point. Here is the very opening with the three-note motive. Another version with a considerable amount of variation and energy this time, and more and more rhythmic complexity as it goes along. Harris varies the motive in a much more horizontal, lyrical fashion. Harris falls into repetitive mode to build up some energy. is easy to listen to and take in. It is not very long, but packs quite a mental punch. Though it was his first symphony, Harris does show compositional growth and maturity here. It is more than worth your time to listen to and enjoy. I can almost guarantee 
you rarely heard on other pieces. If you like what you have heard and want to support the advocacy of American orchestral music, please consider signing up to donate regularly at patreon.com for our continued production of this podcast. Also, subscribe for updates wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.